All right, Luke chapter six, Luke chapter six, and starting with verse 12. And what we're gonna find today, we're gonna begin with the story of Jesus calling his 12 apostles. And we're gonna define exactly what we mean by that. As we do that, I want you to think back with me to a little bit of Old Testament history. Many of you are familiar at least enough with the big stories of the Bible to follow this. God has a history of choosing people that don't seem to be quite fit for the job, right? And he does this over and over again. Many of you are in positions, maybe in your companies, where you have to hire people, you have to do assessments of employees, maybe you've had that done for you, always fun, right? The full 360 review where they tell you everything that you're doing awesome and everything that you're not awesome at. And we're familiar with these kinds of concepts and ideas and finding the right person for the right job and the right fit and the right experience and personality and inclinations and gifts and talents and all of those things. Well, God has a history of picking people that just don't seem to fit. What about Moses? Moses, he chooses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses seemed like the right guy. In fact, he grew up in Pharaoh's house, so he was familiar with Egyptian culture. I'm sure he spoke the language. He knew what was going on, but then he ends up murdering someone, and he's found out, and he goes in exile. He goes running off. God goes and summons him from where he's run off to and says, I have a mission for you. Come back. You're going to lead the Israelites out, and he says, well, I'm not a good public speaker. I have a speech impediment. And this is kind of a public speaking role that you're asking me to do, to share this message, both with the most important man in the world and also to speak regularly in front of large groups of people. And God says, I am aware of that. I made your tongue and I know exactly how it works. Now, come on, I've got a mission for you. Then we have many others in the Old Testament. David is another great example when Nathan goes to anoint the new king and he knows it's gonna be one of the sons of Jesse and Jesse brings all the kids out and parades them and says, here's my sons. And Nathan looks around and says, huh? I don't think he's here. I don't think he's here. Do you have another one by chance? Is there another kid around here somewhere? We've all forgotten a kid at some point in, in time, right? They're like, oh yeah, David. He's out back with the sheep. Um, I don't really think you wanna see him, but... He says, no, 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 bring him up. Like, yep, that's the one. That's gonna be the king. He's the runt. He's not supposed to be the king. Of course, he's the greatest king Israel ever had. What about Gideon? When God calls Gideon to go and defeat the Edomites, he has him whittle down his army until it's just a fraction of what the enemy has. Like, well, this isn't how you win a war, Lord. What a terrible strategy, Let's go to war with this mighty army. First thing we need to do is ditch about 80% of our weaponry and our soldiers. That's the way that we're gonna win this thing. Or David again, a little bit later in his life, when he goes out and uh, this giant, um, this giant uh, Goliath has been taunting the Israelites, saying, come on, I want a one-on-one. Bring your, best, bring your best man out to face me, and they're all scared. And David shows up, it's like, nobody wanna fight this guy? I got him. He's a kid at this point, and he has some rocks and a sling. And he says, I got this. And of course, he does defeat Goliath. This is how God operates, and we see it over and over and over again in the Bible. 
We see it in the New Testament as well, and Paul speaks of, to the Corinthian church, a very wealthy city, sort of the maybe New York, Los Angeles of the day. It was a massive, massive city in the day. And he's speaking to the Corinthians, and he says, there weren't many noble, there weren't many wise among you. God's chosen to house his treasure, this priceless treasure, in clay pots. Just imagine that you've got you know, a little, a little basket of just incalculable worth in diamonds, and you choose to store it in this little fragile clay jar pot. That might be a good idea as a distraction strategy because if somebody breaks in your house, they're not looking there for the most valuable thing, right? And Paul says, this is how the Lord works. He uses these little broken vessels. He uses baked dirt in reality to bring the gospel message. This is how God loves to operate. So as we jump back into the gospel of Luke today, we're gonna see that he chooses 12 men and he chooses them for a very specific office and task. We'll speak more about what that means and what that is. And what we're gonna see as we look at the character profile, what we know of each one of these guys is that they just don't seem to be anything real special. And I hope that's gonna serve as an encouragement for us here today. I have laughed with many people in classes and other things before. I feel like I spend a lot of my time trying to convince people they really aren't that special. Um, we're really not. Like we're, our temptations are very similar. Our struggles are very similar. Our giftings are different, but there's some similarity. Our limitations are pretty similar. You're, you're not that special, okay? Just, you just need to check that at the door of the church. You're really not. Um, I'm not either. I put myself in that category as well. So who were these people and what was their mission? And that's what we'll see over the next couple of weeks. So we're gonna divide this into two sections, or two weeks, two sermons, but three sections. We'll look at the men, the mission, and then the message. So first, we're gonna see the men that God calls out, that Jesus calls out amongst his disciples to be the, the 12, the apostles. So let's read this text. This is Luke 6 and verse 12. And I'll read down through 16 today. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. All right, as we get into this text, the first thing I wanna point out here in verse 12, it's always a little bit of an indictment, I feel like, as I read about the life of Jesus and how often we find Jesus in prayer. Um, particularly, what really precipitates this event of prayer is the choosing of the, who, is, who are gonna be the apostles, choosing of the 12. And it says that he spent all night, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. He has this all night prayer vigil, and seemingly it's over the decision of who's going to be chosen as the apostles. This is a major big decision, and Jesus spends the time praying. We see this again repeated 
multiple places. The most notable is the Garden of Gethsemane on the night when he's arrested. And he goes off to pray, praying, knowing that the crucifixion, the arrest and the crucifixion and the beating and everything that's about to happen. And he's in prayer, struggling with the Lord in prayer before that. Of course, he calls his, the 12 uh, with him there and they keep falling asleep. Um, some of you have probably had this experience as well as you go to pray and your mind goes to wandering off and then all of a sudden you wake up 30 minutes later. And you're like, where were we, Lord? Um, I think I lost, lost track of that. I've mentioned before, uh, when I was in seminary, we had a class on prayer, uh, specifically on prayer. Part of the assignment for each, for the class was every day of the semester, you were supposed to spend an hour in prayer every day, um, an hour in prayer. And I have to tell you that this really was a little bit of a challenge for all of us in seminary, because my first inclination when I saw that assignment is, I don't have time to pray for an hour a day. And I'm like, I need to say that out loud and hear myself say that again. Um, I'm in seminary, training to be a pastor. Say that again so that you can hear it loudly. I don't have time to pray. I've got to study the Bible. Um, Something's wrong here with me, not with the assignment. And it was a real challenge, I I have to tell you. And it it was a challenge because we find our minds wandering off. um, And this is when I really adopted the, what we try to model here for you, uh, praying based on a scripture. So we read a psalm and we base our prayer, we pray through a psalm, we pray through scripture. Uh, that's when, when that really came to life uh, for me. Uh, prayer is such an important reality and it was such an important reality in the life of Jesus. You see it over and over and over again. So that's the context. Jesus is off in prayer and then he chooses these men, these specific people to be apostles. All right, let's, uh, let's dive into this a little bit. Uh, we're gonna ask some questions of this and we're gonna be in the text for a moment. I wanna explain some things that are a little bit outside of our text and then we'll come back into it here in just a moment. So verse 13, when day came, so it's early in the morning, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So There's a few things here, a few terms that I want to try to distinguish, and I think this is really important, and it's really important for other parts of our theology, understanding of the Bible, as we put it together a little bit later. There's three groups here, and these are noticed throughout the New Testament in a couple of different places, and I'll I'll show you that. Um, One, we have disciples, and then we have the 12, and then we have apostles. We run those together, don't we? Uh, a lot of times, if I just said the disciples, you would probably assume I was referring to the 12. Or if I said apostles, you'd probably again assume I was referring to the 12. I understand that, and I think that's okay for us to speak in that way. But we need to understand that there's, it's actually a little bit more defined than that when we actually look at the text and look at what's going on. So a couple of places that will help us understand and see this. Um, we, we need to understand a disciple is just a follower of Jesus, okay? A follower and a learner. So notice what he says. He called his disciples and chose from them 12. So you have the disciples, then you have the 12, then they're named apostles. There's a progression here. Another place where this distinction is made. This is John 6, and this was after after the event where Jesus stands up in front of the crowd and says that you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Now, for ceremonially 
aware, ritually pure Jewish people, when you stand up and start telling them they have to eat flesh and drink blood, that doesn't go over well at all in this context. So in John 6, many turn away. They don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So it does raise a question about what actually is a disciple in the Gospels, right? Because these seem to turn away. Well, they do turn away here. So Jesus said to the 12, all right, so disciple and then the 12, distinction, do you want to go away as well? Like, hey, anybody want off? Um, take off. And Peter, we'll meet Peter a little bit more formally in a moment. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Just a beautiful expression of trust and faith in Christ that we see from Peter. One of the times that Peter got it right, keep that one in mind, because we're gonna look at a couple where he doesn't get it right. Another place where we see a distinction between the 12 and the apostles. This is Paul. He's making the case for the resurrection. And that really doesn't show up, does it? It's not as clear as I was hoping that would be. It says the 12, the first yellow there. I was trying to make that really pop out. I think I managed to blur it um, as I did that. You get the point. So Paul is making the case for the resurrection. Um, and, and he's making the case that the resurrection is actually indispensable to the gospel. So let me say it another way. If there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. Just none. It, it doesn't work if you remove the resurrection. He goes on to talk about this. The whole chapter is about the resurrection. But first, he wants to establish the facts of the resurrection. The resurrection actually did happen. How do we know? Well, a lot of people saw it. <laughs> That's how we know. That's Paul's answer. How do we know the resurrection happened? It's like, well, go ask somebody. A lot of people saw Jesus. And then he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, then to the 12, all right, so the 12, as we will meet them in a moment. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So he, he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to 500 brothers at one time. So there was a big group that saw Jesus, and he says, most of them are still alive, some of them are asleep. Asleep here is a euphemism for they have died. So most of these 500 are still alive. Now, why would Paul tell them most of them are still alive? In light of the question, how do we know Jesus was resurrected? Go ask them. Like, hey, a lot of people saw this. Go talk to them. They saw him. They know. And that's why he's reminding them. This is historically verifiable, the resurrection. It wasn't made up. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, all right? So if you read that and you don't have these categories of the 12 and the apostles, that might throw you for a loop because he just said he appeared to the 12. Now he said he appears to the apostles. Those are, those are a little bit of distinction in that. All of the 12 are apostles, but there are apostles outside of the 12, all right? Anybody need more coffee? Everybody good? All right, a little tongue twister for you. All of the 12 are appointed apostles, but then there's a group, more people, outside of the 12. And then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. So this is Paul. Paul wasn't a part of the 12. 
He wasn't originally a part. Jesus appears to him later. We have this record in Acts chapter nine, and Paul is called to be an apostle. So let's get back to this idea. What then is an apostle? What are we talking about? So we have this group, the 12. They're specifically chosen by the Lord to be his learners, his followers, and they're commissioned as apostles. In the most generic sense, the word apostle just means one who's sent out, all right? One who's sent out on a mission. When we start talking the apostles, and we'll use apostle in the capital A sense, it's a unique office, unique office. It's a closed group in the first century. They had to have seen the risen Christ, and they had to be commissioned by Christ specifically. And so now we're starting to get a little bit more precise on what we mean by that. So the qualifications for an apostle, someone who had seen the risen Christ, as Paul said, have I not seen the Lord? I'm qualified on that basis. He was commissioned by Christ, and this is Paul again, someone who was commissioned by Christ. And then to be one of the 12, they also had to have been with Jesus from the beginning. Now, the 12 is a closed group, obviously. There's only how many? Just making sure you were with me. They have to replace one, though, because Judas, after he betrays Christ, he hangs himself. And so he, uh, he's replaced by Matthias um, in Acts chapter 1. And they lay out the stipulations. They had to be commissioned by the Lord, see the risen Christ, and had to be a follower from the beginning. And they mark the beginning as from the baptism of John the Baptist um, is when they mark out the beginning in Acts chapter 1. So that's the apostles. That's what the apostles um, are. We'll talk about what, why that's so significant in just a moment. There are a few other apostles that are not part of this group here in the 12. There's four times this list is given in the New Testament. And the, Paul is not part of this group. So we have Matthias, which I mentioned a moment ago, Acts chapter one. We have Paul, we've already talked about him. James, the Lord's brother, is spoken of by Paul as an apostle. Barnabas is mentioned as an apostle in Acts chapter 14 and verse 14. There are a few others as well, and there's some debate around a couple others. I just wanted to give you a sampling. There are people who are not part of the 12 who are considered apostles. So let's get back to this question. What is an apostle then, and why is that so important for the first century? The apostles were people uniquely chosen out by the Lord, and I believe that they served in a very unique way. They were given a special role in the establishment of the early church, and the Lord did particular things through them, namely the gifts, what we would call sign gifts. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. Note it says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. Well, what are these signs? With signs and wonders and mighty works. I believe these are the miraculous things that the apostles were able to do. They were revelatory gifts. There's a new covenant that's being inaugurated, a new day, a new thing, new apostles that are getting this church off the ground. Another text that I think is really important for understanding this is Ephesians 2.20. The church is built on the foundation, ultimately of Christ as the foundation and in another sense we could say the cornerstone that's also mentioned. But it's built on Christ and then on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. 
so the church then, I'll read you a little bit more context, verse 19, I don't have on the screen for you. But it says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then our verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the cornerstone in a building, some of you may be involved in building projects, you know, if you're gonna lay the foundation of a building, getting that, and especially in ancient culture, when you're building things with big rocks, um, it's important to get that cornerstone just right, the first stone of the building, because it's gonna set where the walls are gonna go, it's gonna set everything in place. And so Christ is viewed as the cornerstone, and then everything else builds out from that. So let's talk about these guys then. So apostle, in the largest sense, in the more, is a specific role. It's a unique office that was delegated to the first century, and it was for the purpose of the establishment of the church. Um, I think that's what an apostle is. So who were the 12? Let's get into it here and talk about the 12. Got some artwork here for you. Not my artwork, um, obviously, not my artwork. But many, uh, in many places, actually, the uh, paintings that you'll see if you ever go and visit somewhere, maybe in Europe or biblical sites, um, the ancient um, artwork, uh, the, the people look very similar. I don't know how they decided that back in the day that, you know, Peter was going to look like this and John was going to look like this, but it is kind of universal um, once you start looking at some of this artwork. So let's learn a little bit about who these guys were. So the 12 apostles, as I said, there's no specific um, job description. There's no specific resume. In fact, if you were going to write the job description and you were going to write a description for, we need a group of 12 guys who are going to lead revolution in the world and it's going to change the complexion of all of the world over the next 2,000 years. What kind of guys are you looking for? You would probably say you need some fishermen, you need a tax collector, you need a political zealot, and you need a traitor. That should do. It doesn't make any sense, does it? The way the Lord chooses to do this. There were four fishermen, possibly up to seven fishermen, depending. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were most definitely fishermen, and then a few guys at the end who were with them when they go back to fishing, so maybe they were part of the group. Maybe they just went fishing for the day with their buddies. We're not sure exactly. I think there's something spiritual, a connection to the vocation, fishermen, of, and, and the leadership of the church. There has to be something going on um, with that. Maybe not. These guys were very ordinary. Uh, there's no evidence that they were, in and of themselves, extraordinary figures. They seem to come from normal families, seem to come from normal vocations, and really their backgrounds aren't highlighted. The closest thing we have to somebody like that is Paul, who was raised as a Pharisee, and we know that his Old Testament knowledge and learning was really off the charts. So with the 12, though, it seems to be a very normal group of people. There's a group of disciples that have formed up around Jesus, and then Jesus takes that group, and he picks 12 of them and says, you guys are going to be my apostles. That's how it works. So let's look at them. What about Peter? Peter's first, and Peter seems to be the leader of the 12. 
He's the one that's always speaking out. He's the kid in class that always raises his hand to answer the questions. And he's the one that's just out there for better or worse. And so that's why we loved Peter so much. Had some very great high points where he confesses Christ. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And he confesses Christ in Matthew 16. We also have another place where he says, he rebukes Christ because Jesus says, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and I'm gonna be crucified. And he says, yeah, I'm not gonna let that happen. And, and so he rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus turns around and says, get behind me, Satan. So same guy, same guy. So he has some really high, high points and really low, low points. He was able to walk on water. Immediately after that, he began to sink because he took his eyes off of the Lord. He witnessed the transfiguration. He also denied Christ. He was rebuked by Jesus. Ultimately, he was restored, so he had a very up and down sort of life. After uh, Jesus' ascension and after Peter is commissioned, he takes the lead role in replacing Judas. We see that in Acts 1.15. Um, we see that thousands of people um, we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4 that Peter stands up and preaches and thousands of people come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Just extraordinary what the Lord did uh, with this man. It really, really is extraordinary. Thousands are saved and then Jesus told him what kind of death he would have. Now, I have these verses on this screen for you because I think this becomes something that is in Peter's mind constantly, and I'll show you why I think that in just a moment. So this is at the end, uh, right before John concludes his gospel, and Peter has denied Christ, he's been restored by Christ, and then Jesus decides to tell him a little bit about what's gonna happen in the future. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. Hey, Peter, one day, let's read between the lines here, you're going to be arrested and your independence is gonna be completely stripped from you and one day you're gonna die at the hands of godless people. So come follow me. Great, <laughs> you know, great. What, what else are we gonna do? So Peter, uh, and this, this always strikes me as a little bit funny uh, in this exchange that we have here. So Jesus has this conversation. They're on the beach. Uh, they've, they've just come in from a night of fishing and Jesus, Jesus has just restored Peter. The other apostles, the other, others of the 12, the 11 at this point are around. And then Peter hears Jesus tell him this and says, so um, what about him? And ask about John. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So uh, I'm gonna die like this. Um, what about John? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until you come, what is that to you? Follow me. None of your business, Peter. I'll tell you what you need to know. I'm not telling you what I'm doing the rest of the place. I'm telling you what you need to know. I think this becomes just something that's lodged in Peter's mind constantly. Just imagine if Jesus told you what kind of death you were going to die. I mean, how would that affect you when you wake up in the morning? So here's what happens. This happens, and then in Acts chapter four, Peter gets arrested. 
what do you think he thinks is coming? Well, <laughs> Jesus said it was going to go this way. Then he gets released. Then in Acts chapter 5, he gets arrested and he gets released. Then in Acts chapter 12, he gets arrested. The church is all praying for Peter's release. He's miraculously released. He shows up at the house. They're so excited. The slave girl that answered the door, she's so excited that it's Peter that she doesn't even let him in. She just runs back and he's like, hey, can you open the door, you know, so I can come in? And so this, this just becomes something that's constantly has to be on Peter's mind because he knows this is going to come. Then, Towards the end of his life, he writes the letters of 1st and 2nd Peter. 2nd Peter is his last letter. And he says this. I'll read this for you. This is 2nd Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, this earthly body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter takes on a ministry of reminding, and he says this a few times. I don't mind saying the same thing again to you. This is somewhat of a comfort for preachers and teachers, isn't it? You're like, we already covered that. It's like, yeah, so let's do it again. Uh, Peter says, I, I don't mind doing that. It's, it's good. It's good for you to be reminded. And then he says this in verse 14. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. I know that this is coming. I know where I'm headed. I know what's about to happen. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, after I die, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And so Peter takes on, he's, we see so much maturing take place and this is written some 20 years after uh, Christ's ascension, his resurrection and ascension. So this is Peter, the profile of Peter. And he had some highs, he had some lows, and the Lord used him. We'll go through the rest of these, and Peter is obviously the one that we have the most material about. And we've already talked about some of these. So let's just look at what do we know about these different guys. Next in our list, if you go back to Luke chapter 6, we have Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Next we meet Peter's brother, Andrew, it's interesting, Andrew is always identified as the brother of Peter. Peter is not identified as the brother of Andrew. I don't know, maybe there's an older sibling, younger sibling thing going on there. It's actually Andrew that brings Peter to Jesus though. John 1, 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah. So it's kind of interesting if you ask somebody, who was the first of the apostles to identify Jesus as the Messiah. I think most people would say Peter, Peter's confession. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's actually Andrew. Uh, he's the first to identify Jesus as the Messiah. And he brings Peter to meet him, to meet Jesus. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. How'd you like that? You meet a guy and he changes your name right off the bat. Like, well, hi, Peter, um, or hi, Simon. We're gonna change your name now. You're gonna be called Cephas, which means Peter or rock. So this is Andrew. We don't know a lot about him. James, he's the brother of John. He's one of what's called the sons of thunder. We don't know a lot about him either. He's best known for 
two questions that he asked Jesus. One, should we call down fire from heaven on an inhospitable village that didn't receive them? Well, that's nice. And then two, can John and I have honored positions in heaven? That's what he wants. So it's not always great to get your name in the Bible. Uh, Sometimes it's just interesting. We don't have a lot from these guys. But what we do have, the snapshots that the gospel writers have chosen to give us aren't always all that positive. And I think that's in course to highlight Christ. James turns out to be a very faithful brother and we see he's the only apostle outside of Judas, however we count that one. He's the only apostle whose death is actually recorded in the Bible. This is in Acts chapter 12. By the way, he kill, Herod kills James, executes James, sees that the people are really excited about that and so he goes and arrests Peter. You know what Peter thinks is coming. And then he's miraculously uh, freed from prison after that. So we have James, then we have John. John's part of the inner circle with Jesus. Peter, James, and John writes the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. He refers to himself with humility as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then he's commissioned at the cross to care for Jesus' mother. Now, church history tells us, this isn't in the Bible, but church history tells us that he eventually takes Mary away from Jerusalem and moves over to Ephesus, which is likely, uh, there's good evidence for that, um, and lives there in Ephesus for a time. He's exiled to the island of Patmos, which is just out there in the Mediterranean, and then eventually he's able to come back and lives out the rest of his days. Uh, He's the only apostle, only of the 12, that we know uh, wasn't martyred. Uh, He wasn't actually martyred. Uh, for the faith. Uh, Church history, again, records the death of the rest of these guys, um, but not for John. Philip then, Philip might have been a fisherman, may have been part of the group. We don't know about uh, much about him either. He's from Bethsaida. Jesus asked him if they should feed the crowd. Kind of interesting. He just picks him out of the group. Um, I would imagine you've been in class where the professor will randomly call on different people to answer questions. I would imagine there's a little bit of pressure when Jesus calls on you. Hey, should we feed the crowd? Um, feed them what? Uh, and, and they don't know, you know, what Jesus is up to and what he's planning. And then he asks the question, should we, can you show us God the Father? And in that place, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He asks a pretty good question. Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel, he was brought to Jesus by Philip. And then he also doubts that the Messiah could be from Nazareth. Now, that's a bad intro to your future instructor. He says, hey, Bartholomew, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. He says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? (laughs) It's a bad start. Then Jesus saw him from a long ways off and they have this exchange. I saw you under the fig tree. And then he confesses, okay, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. We don't know much else about him. Levi, we talked about him, so we won't spend too much time on him. He was a tax collector, author of the Gospel of Matthew, also called Matthew. And we just saw his conversion and the party that he throws right after that in, uh, in chapter five, verses 27 down through 32. And then the aftermath of that, 
Then we have Thomas, Thomas the twin. And he has the most unfortunate nickname. He's possibly a fisherman as well. He's most well known for saying this, Jesus had appeared to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't with them when he had appeared. And so they reunite with Thomas and they say, you're not gonna believe this, we saw Jesus. And he says, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And you know what happens next. Jesus, he finally meets Jesus. He says, all right, here I am, come on. And he does end up believing. Doubting Thomas, it's an unfortunate nickname. We have no reason to think that he continually doubted. And let's put ourselves here and have some sympathy as well. The death that they just watched Christ go through, nobody survived that, nobody. And so they have a lesson on the crucifixion and the resurrection specifically. James, the son of Alphaeus. You know what we know about James? He was the son of Alphaeus. Simon, <laughs> we don't know much about. Simon the zealot. So a zealot isn't exactly a vocation. Um, it means that he was probably a political agitator of the day and could have been, could have been even pushing for removal of the Romans by force. And so Jesus calls him out to be his disciple. Then we have Judas, the son of James. Not much is known about him either. Uh, Jude, Judas is a very common name um, in the New Testament. And so there's multiple people with the name Jude, Judas in the New Testament. Uh, Judas doesn't become as popular in later generations for obvious reasons, but it's the same root as the word Jude, Jude uh, and Judas. Likely the author of the epistle of Jude, but as I said, there were a lot of Judes running around. They didn't have first name, last name quite like we do. So it's a little bit difficult uh, to have certainty on some of those things, but most likely the epistle of Jude. And then we have lastly, of course, of the 12, Judas Iscariot. <laughs> he wasn't available that day that they took pictures. So Judas Iscariot, who was Judas Iscariot? How did he get the name Iscariot? It's of Kerioth, which is where the name Iscariot eventually comes to us from. Judas of the town, the village of Kerioth. Um, a lot has been made of Judas, and there's a lot we could say, obviously, about Judas. It's likely that he maybe was a money manager. Um, he ends up managing the money for the, uh, the 12, and we see that he confronts Jesus one time when the jar, uh, the expensive perfume is broken, and Judas says, hey, that was a bad financial decision there. Uh, why are you doing that? And so we, we see just a couple little snapshots into his life. He had the 12 fooled, um, and the reason I say that is because Jesus at the Last Supper says, one of you is gonna betray me, and they're all shocked. They're looking around like, uh, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And so it's not incredibly obvious, it doesn't seem to the apostles, the 12, who this person is. So I don't think Judas walked around with you know, red horns coming out of his head, and it wasn't that obvious who he was. He was in disguise um, amongst the 12. Of course, he takes his own life after betraying Jesus. The guilt overwhelms him. 
He ends up taking his own life. He throws the money that he had received from betraying Jesus. He throws it away and he goes and he hangs himself. Incredibly sad story. So how can we learn from the apostles? Just the makeup of the apostles. Just a couple of, uh, a few thoughts I'll give you and I'll leave you with this today. People useful for kingdom work. God uses these four types of people. If you look at the complexion, the makeup of the 12, we have at least four commercial fishermen, perhaps as many as seven, a political revolutionary, a most likely disliked IRS official, a crooked accountant, and a traitor. That's a complexion. What did they accomplish in the gospel story? Let's just, this is a, if you're a sports person, sometimes you have the bottom 10. Um, You could put all of these in that. What did they accomplish? They demeaned Jesus' hometown, making fun of Nazareth. They rebuked Jesus for teaching, specifically his prophecy about the resurrection and the crucifixion. They want to call down fire from heaven. They don't want to believe that Jesus is actually resurrected until he shows himself personally. They engage in debates, endless debates, about who's the greatest. They run like scared schoolgirls at the crucifixion. John chapter 16, they scatter. They deny Jesus after spending years with him, Peter, and they ask for special treatment when Jesus enters his kingdom. So this is just not the group that you would expect to change the world, but yet here they are. There's hope for us in this. God uses normal people, imperfect people. He uses learners and fearful people. Normal people. You might think, well, I don't have any particular set of skills that's useful in kingdom work. Perfect, perfect. You're wide open for the Lord to use. That's exactly what he's looking for. He uses imperfect people. Let me just say a few things here about this. There is room for people who have made mistakes to be part of God's followers and to spread God's message. You know, in our modern world, we're kind of being taken over by this whole like cancel culture idea. You say something wrong and you can't ever speak to a particular issue again or speak at all. That's just not, that's not what happens in God's economy and kingdom here. You have someone like Paul who's saying, I was a persecutor of the church. I was on the wrong team. Now I'm on the right team. You have people that denied Christ and yet the Lord used them. It's not a gospel ideology. You have learners. I was gonna say ignorant. It sounds a little too harsh. Learners. You have people that progress and mature and grow. And we see this beginning to end with the, with the 12 specifically. He uses fearful people as well. The 12 scatter. Peter denies Christ. Thomas doubts. And yet... And yet, you see them bold as lions after the resurrection, after Jesus restores them. All of them, except for John, would eventually face martyrdom and would have the boldness to do that. So if you find yourself in one of these categories, or you could probably add a few more to this list as well, just know that you're in really good company. You're in perfect company for God to use for his kingdom work and purposes. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're grateful for the gospel message and we're thankful for this message that you appointed these, this particular group of people to spread throughout the world early in the first century. And here we are, we're products of the mission that they were on. 
Lord, we come now and we see glimpses of the, of the 12 that are ministering with Jesus, they're learning from Jesus, but this is all before the ultimate events that we see, the crucifixion and the resurrection. We stand now on the other side of that, seeing that they were faithful uh, in the end. So Lord, I, I pray for some in here uh, this morning, uh, maybe they've never really truly considered that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one who's worth following. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would use your word, use this message, use the scripture by your spirit. We pray that they would show them their desperate need for Christ today. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.